0: Well, good morning, everybody. For those visiting, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor here at the Gathering Place Church. Love this place. Um, I was greeting people and praying for people while uh, Kobe was talking, so I don't know um, if he did his job right or not. So I'm going to just want to back him up. I love to encourage the young lions in the house with shame. But, um, hey, if you're visiting, uh, so we have... These books that are the gift edition, they're a smaller book, and you can grab one if you fill out that get, uh, Connect card, drop it off outside in the box, and uh, Stuart will give you a free um, gift edition book. These are 10 bucks. We ran out last week, which is a, a good problem and a bad problem. Uh, this is a daily devotional uh, that you read during this series. So like last week, I taught on Is God Real? Proving that God exists through uh, logic and physics and scientific and archaeological research. It's easier to prove God exists than that he doesn't exist. And so you go through every day, you read a page and a half, that's what a chapter is, for six days, and then you are in your connect group and uh, you discuss those questions. So today we're going to be looking at, is the Bible true? So I don't know about you, you may have grown up the way I did where uh, the Bible either wasn't even on your radar or it was just a really scary, intimidating, mysterious weird book. I remember when I was, uh, you know, uh, about 14 years old, I was living with my grandma and grandpa and my dad because my dad had gone bankrupt. All the other kids were gone. I was the youngest of six. So my dad and I, when he was 40 and I was 14 or something, we moved into my grandma and grandpa's house. And, you know, she would drive me around and I would sit in the back of a station wagon and she had this little plastic statue of Jesus stuck on the dashboard and Jesus would just be like looking at me and I was like pinned to the back seat. It kind of freaked me out. And then in her house, of course, she had the plastic on all the couches and chairs. You ever, you remember that? And you're like, somebody died or somebody's about to die. That's just the feeling you get. It's it's like, this is just, you know, you sit down in this and under the big coffee table, was this massive Bible that had dust all over, you know, and the house smelled weird and there's plastic on the couches and the plastic Jesus and that big Bible. And the, and the whole thing was, there was a lot of statues when you went to church and, you know. That was my experience with the Bible. Until I was 19 years old and somebody at work started talking to me about going to church. And I thought, that's, that's definitely not for me. You're talking to the wrong guy. And uh, But he handed me a Bible. And it was a little uh, pocket New Testament And I went to church with them a couple times just to get them to stop inviting me is why I went. And I heard the gospel for the first time. The good news that though we are all sinners and have fallen short of God's moral standard, God loves us so much that he sent his son to the earth to die for us. The innocent taking the place of the guilty. And if I were to accept that exchange, that payment for my sins, and not try to impress God with my good works, but just admit that I'm a sinner, And that I have no chance of getting into heaven, but salvation is a free gift through his son that my sins would be forgiven. I'd never heard that message before my entire life growing up in the religion I was brought up in. So I went home, knelt down by my bed, and said, Jesus, I don't know if you're real or not. But if you're more than that little plastic statue on my grandma's dashboard of her car, I'm inviting you into my life. And that was 35 years ago, and uh, Jesus clearly made a difference a life transformation in my life. Many of my friends in my high school still can't believe who I am now compared to who I was, and it's all because of Christ. But that little New Testament that was given to me by the, my, by the guy on the construction site was the old King James. Now, at this point, I'm 19 years old, and I'm reading the old King James. Thus thou hearkenest unto us. You know, it, it was all the Elizabethan English, you know, like the, the Shakespearean you know, literature and I mean, it was, I already thought the Bible was intimidating and mysterious, but now I'm reading it in a 500-year-old dialect. Thanks a lot. I did not even know until a few years later that there were any other translations available until my mom bought me this Bible. And this, this Bible, it says here, Presented to my son John Stephen Ettor. I don't know why parents always have to use the middle name. You know, and when they and when they use your middle name when they're calling you from across the house, you know what that means, right? You're in trouble. That's right. Johnny, you're not in trouble. John Stephen Ettor, you're in trouble. All right. And then it says from mom. January 2nd, 1986. And uh, you know. I really enjoyed using this Bible. And boy, did I use it. And the truth is that when you find somebody whose Bible is falling apart, it's usually an indicator that their life is not. But when I opened up this translation, it was like somebody gave me, it's like I was like, you know, had really, really poor eyesight, and somebody gave me a pair of glasses. I was like, oh! Oh! I can understand this. This is plain speech. And we're going to talk a little bit about the translations. And there are so many translations. How can we know over 4,000 years that the Bible is actually true? So today what I want us to do is I want to answer some of these questions that you may have or some of your friends may have and, and give you some intelligent answers to really good questions. Today it's about the Bible. Next week we're going to talk about as is uh, there really only one way to heaven? How about all the other religions? Uh, the next week, we're going to talk about if God is good, why does He allow suffering? We're going to talk about what happens after you die. These are six questions that are the most asked questions about God. The seventh week, we're going to have a panel up here, and we are going to simply do a free for all Q and A, live Q and A. And so, you want to bring your friends, especially those who are, are curious about Christianity, the Bible, God, and. Uh, lead people to Christ through answering questions. So here are some questions that you might have. What about the Bible? Is it true? Who wrote it? And when was it written? Is it reliable? Is it historically accurate? Or is there just a bunch of voodoo, voodoo in it? Like the guy who handed me the Bible actually said to me, there's magic in these pages. Well, at that time, I didn't know that God con- you know, condemns magic, but I know what he meant. There's power within the pages of the book. Now, after 30-some years of spending night and day in this book, is the primary way God speaks to us. And it's alive. It is powerful. It, it literally is, I believe, the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit literally uses it to speak to your heart and give you wisdom and direction, and strength. But there's been a lot of misinformation that's crept into our culture and uh, onto the internet about the Bible. And I want to do as much as I can to clear some of this up today. So last week, I talked about is God real? And I used a lot of visuals. Today, because of what we're studying, we're going to give you a lot of information. So be prepared to worship God with your mind this morning. Did you know the Bible does not say worship God by the removal of your mind, but the renewal of your mind? Christianity is a, is a rational, logical, intellectual faith. It's not just a blind faith. And so today we're going to jump in to studying, is the Bible true? So first of all, the Bible is flawless. Now, you have uh, notes in your bulletin if you want. If you need a pen, you can raise your hand, and the ushers will bring you a pen so you can take notes. I've got a little half sheet in there for you. The Bible is flawless. The Bible makes this claim about itself. Look at Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6 says. Will you read this out loud with me? Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Don't you love how soft and cuddly and vague the Bible is sometimes. Now, there's three things, three statements made here, and that is, number one, the Bible claims to be flawless. Two, it claims that God is a shield to those who run to him. And thirdly, it warns about adding to his words which many people in the religions have done. But because of time constraints, I'm only going to hit the first one today, is the Bible flawless. Now, according to the dictionary.com, flawless means having no defects, or false, especially none that diminish the value of something. Now, the Bible claims that for itself. This means when God spoke to the original writers flowing through human instruments, what they wrote down was flawless. Like the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, When you, I thank God that when you received the word of God from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as, as it is in truth, the words of of God. So this morning I'm going to give you some information to help you decide if you believe that to be true or not. The next uh, little bit I'm going to talk about where the Bible came from, how the Bible is absolutely unique, how the Bible has been copied and translated, how science and history compare to the Bible, and how prophecy, which is my favorite Portion compares to the Bible so we have to move quickly so where did the Bible come from well if you open your Bibles or if you have an electronic Bible you can look at the table of contents and you're going to find in the front of your Bible it'll look something like this we have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament now you'll see that the Bible is divided into two major sections the Old and the New the Old Testament has 39 books the New Testament has 27 books and they are Uh, broken up into three different types of literature. In the Old Testament, uh, you have the history, uh, which is from Genesis through the book of Esther, and it reads like a story. And uh, then you have poetry, which is Job through the songs of Solomon, or the songs of songs, and that's poetry. It's more expressive and philosophical as men and women interact with God. And then there's prophecy, which is Isaiah through Malachi, which caps off the Old Testament, which is talking about what God is going to do in the future, which is where we're going to end today, which is powerful. And then you have the New Testament, which also has history, which reads like a story, which is from Matthew through the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts reads like history. And then you have the letters, which was written by Paul and others, which were the letters written to new believers and new churches that were just planted and just growing about how to walk out the Christian life. And then you have prophecy, which is the last book in the Bible, which was the apostle John who they tried to kill, but he wouldn't die. They tried to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't boil. What do you do with a guy like that? So they throw him on the island of Patmos, which is a penal colony, and Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appears to John, and then he says, write down what I'm about to show you, and he gives him the book of Revelation. Then John ends up coming off the island of Patmos and he lived in Ephesus where he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so, let's look at who wrote the Old Testament first and when it was written. So, the first book was written by, uh, uh, historians believe Job wrote the book in 1900 BC. Now, that means there's a 2,000 plus year span Uh, where the Bible was written from 1900 B.C. to 70 to 90 A.D., which means after Christ was uh, born. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, 1400 B.C. Now, there's some debate about whether he wrote uh, the first five books of the Bible, but I believe the evidence makes it very clear that he did. He uh, probably copied the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis from a previous source. Then the oral uh, um, traditions that bring the authenticity of the stories all the way down to the time where Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which are uh, highly guarded. The oral translations are not like what we, you know, you do that little game where you tell somebody something and they tell the person next to them and they tell the person next to them by the time it gets back around to you, it's nothing like what it started like. That is not the oral tradition. That's not what it's like when you pass it down from generation to generation through the Hebrew nation and the Hebrew culture, as you'll see. how how articulate and how specific and how careful they were in translating the Word of God. Now, it's interesting that during the 1800s, skeptics of the Bible claimed that Moses could not have written the books. The reason? They claimed writing wasn't even invented until after Moses' death. Now, this created quite an embarrassment for those who claim that the Bible is true, but more of an embarrassment in 1901 for the critics when Jacques de Morgan and John Vincent Scheel excavated the ancient city of Susa. Now, mind you, they said that writing didn't even was not even invented until after Moses' death in 1400. And yet, they discovered in 1901 the Code of Hammurabi etched in a stone tablet in 1795. So that's almost 400 years before Moses even lived. They found evidence of languages being written. Now the fifth book of the Bible, uh, the Deuteronomy, uh, Moses obviously didn't write the end of that, Joshua did, because Moses died and Joshua talks about his mentor's death. But they put that book in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. That's where the uh, Old Testament, the Pentateuch, was kept. Now, the, whole, now the Ark of the Covenant was a, uh, a golden-laden wooden box that the, that the Hebrews believed the presence of God was in. You guys seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You guys have seen what happens when you open up the Ark when you're not supposed to. In there, you find uh, Aaron's rod, you find the Pentateuch, you find the book of Joshua, you find the writings that the Jews kept in the holies of holies, which is in the most sacred place that only the high priest could go. And who wrote the Old Testament? Joshua wrote the book of Joshua. Samuel wrote the book of Judges Ruth and Moses 1 Samuel. Samuel. And then Samuel, who was the first, the last judge and the first of the prophets, had a school of the prophets. And they wrote down the history of Israel. The authors were Nathan and Gad and Ahijah and Edo and Jehu and Isaiah and other historical books. Jeremiah wrote the books of Kings, Lamentations and Jeremiah. Ezra wrote the book of Chronicles and he co-authored Nehemiah. Mordecai wrote the book of Esther. King David wrote half the Song, and King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, Psalms of Psalms, most of the book of Proverbs. And then according to the Talmud, which is two ancient books that included the Jewish laws and the stories, and according to the historian Josephus, the prophets wrote the book of the prophets. So the Old Testament was completed about 400 B.C., and then there was 400 years of silence. Now, during this time, there were books that were written by the, but they were not written by um, credible authors, and it's called the Apocrypha, which... Like the Catholic Church includes that in their theology, but they're not canonized because when you have to look at articles of antiquity, you have to put them through the grid, the scientific, historical, archaeological grid that tests them to make sure they are accurate and that they should be included by looking at copies of these articles all throughout that area, which we'll look at in a few moments. And it proves their authenticity, say, yes, that is an authentic article, but the Apocrypha Uh, Was not included. So you have these 400 years of silence where God is not speaking. And then Jesus is born and the New Testament begins. Now, who wrote the New Testament? The reason I'm going through this like this is because this isn't a mystery. This is historically and archaeologically proven to be facts. We know who these people were, we know what they wrote. And there were people all around them and writers around them that were confirming that these people existed and this is what they wrote. And then, of course, then through archaeological digs and and, uh, discoveries over the years, the Bible keeps being proven to be true over and over and over and over again. We'll look at some of that. But in the New Testament, Paul, who was a murderer of Christians, he was the greatest enemy of the church he would go into church services and drag Christians in the first century to um, death. He would drag them to prison. They'd feed them to the lions. They would torture them. The resurrected Christ, according to Paul's own testimony, Jesus appeared to, his name was Saul, and said, Hey, cut it out. Quit hurting my people. Gave him an ultimatum. Paul chose wisely, and he gave his life to Christ. And then he became the greatest leader of the Christian church. He went from a terrorist of the church to an apostle of the church. And he wrote half of the 27 uh, books in the New Testament. He wrote many of the letters. Luke, who was a close companion of Paul's, who was a physician, wrote the book of Luke in Acts John wrote John for second, third John in Revelation. Peter wrote first and second Peter. Mark wrote Mark. Matthew wrote Matthew. James wrote James. James and Jude were the half-brothers of Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is a sermon, and the author is unknown. So the New Testament was completed between 46 A.D. and 90 A.D. And you say, well, so what? Why does that matter? Well, because every book of the Bible was written by a prophet or an apostle who walked with Jesus. So they were right There, now the prophets of the Old Testament. You say, "Well, what's such a big deal?" In the Old Testament, here is the test of a prophet: everything you say must happen, or we kill you. Thank God for the New Testament rules, where you can just give it your best shot, and if it doesn't turn out, you can say, "Well, I tried." (laughs) Amen. I could explain that in First First Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, but I'm not teaching on that today. But everybody gets to prophesy now. Uh, but, you, you, but when we prophesy, meaning God speaks to you spontaneously, something you feel he might be saying, it can never contradict Scripture, or you're either talking out of your own self, or you're hanging out with the devil. So, but in the Old Testament, if you made a mistake, they would stone you to death. It's one of the ways you know that the Old Testament is accurate. And in the New Testament, it very clearly says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that God breathed upon the authors as they wrote. And the Bible says every word in the New Testament is God breathed. Now, I know many of you believe that because you read the word and you know God speaks to you when you're reading it. And the spirit and the presence of God is there. Some of you are curious about it. And I'm telling you, the best way to find out if what I'm talking about today is true is to read the Bible for yourself, and what you're going to find is it reads you. God knows you, He created you, He knows your name, He knows when you're born, He knows when you're going to die, He knows how He hardwired you. He gave you your passions and your gifts. He loves you, you're his child, and he wants to have a relationship with you. and this is the primary way you get to know God and hear His voice is this living book right here. So how is the Bible absolutely unique? from every other book on the planet. I'm going to go through this quickly, okay? You guys with me today? A lot of information, but I'm, I'm trying to get you to use your brains because Christianity is not a blind faith. It's not just, ooh, I feel this warm feeling inside. There is logical, rational, scientific, archaeological evidences to this book right here so you don't have to be intimidated by mockers or by people who are who is genuinely seeking and asking you really good questions that really should have really good answers. And so that's what we're doing today is we're using our minds. Remember, not the removal of our minds, but the renewal of our minds. How is the Bible? Absolutely unique. One, in its composition. It was written over 1,600 years, from 1900 B.C. to A.D. 90, by more than 40 authors with different backgrounds and three different languages from three continents. You say, yeah, that proves that it probably isn't accurate. Watch this. Yet with continuity and agreement from cover to cover that's one of the evidences of its authenticity is its congruity all the way over those thousands of years by multiple different authors it has internal consistency in a theme that is nothing short of amazing and its teachings its history and its theology it is consistent there's an author named Derek prince he was noted as the most read man, meaning he has read more than any human being alive. Derek Prince, you can look him up. But he had never read the Bible because he thought it was a book for simple folk. But one day he was in a rush to go to a uh, get on a plane and he, he was in a hotel room and there was a Bible there and he thought uh, he didn't have a Bible to read. He didn't have a book to read with him. So he grabbed it and he began reading the Bible. He started in the Old Testament and As he was reading it, this is his testimony. He said, I've read more than any person alive, and I know the way man thinks. I know the mind of human beings and the way they think. This was not written from the mind of a human being. He got to the New Testament and just gave his life to Christ. Secondly, how is the Bible unique in its circulation? It is the single most published book in the history of the world. Billions have been printed. How would you like to have that record as an author? I've sold billions. And tens of millions continue to be sold and circulated every year. It's, the, it's been the top bestseller for hundreds of years. How about that? That'd be pretty cool to write a book, and it's the top seller. Not for a month, not for two months, not for a year, but for hundreds of years, your book is the best seller. Obviously, the world knows its value, and its translation is the single most widely translated book in the world, translated to over a thousand languages, and there are teams of full-time people who are still translating the book today in more languages, It also, in its durability, it has survived bans, burnings, ridicule, criticism for centuries, and yet it lives on. People have risked their lives to distribute Bibles where they've been banned. You know, I was reading this book one time, um, uh, From Prison to Praise, from Terry Law. Remember Terry Law, hon? He's been around forever. Terry Law, you guys know Terry Law. And uh, so I'm reading this book, and he's going behind the Iron Curtain before the wall fell in Russia. Communism was still alive. And I wouldn't say well, alive and dastardly. And so I'm reading this book, and all of a sudden it says, and Gary Cass, who was on my team, when we stopped at Checkpoint Charlie, now note that Gary Cass was my friend. And we were on staff together at a church here in East County in San Diego. And Andrea and Reed, you guys were there. You know Gary. And, uh, and it says that we got the checkpoint Charlie and all the soldiers start making us unload our bus. And they start going through all of our luggage. And what, they, what, what, what you need to know is that they had printing plates inside the monitors of the speaker. Because they came into Russia as a, as a music group. And they would go into bars and in different places and they would play their music and then they'd preach the gospel. And they were bringing in printing plates so they could print Bibles in the underground church in Russia. And the plates were in the speakers. And when the soldier got a screwdriver and started taking the screws off, one screw, two screws. Now you understand Checkpoint Charlie during the communist regime means you're not going to go play music. You're going to go bust rocks in Siberia. And that's real. And see, third screw, and he said, when he was about to go to the fourth screw, he said, Gary Cass was over in the bushes vomiting. And then somebody called the soldier, got his attention, and so the soldier stopped opening the speakers. And they got through checkpoint Charlie. But the next day when I saw Gary, I walked into his office and said, Hey! (laughs) So, How was Checkpoint Charlie? He's like, oh, man, I can't believe you. The only thing he wrote about me in his book was the fact that I was vomiting in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he did that. Risking his life to get the Bible into the hands. Now, I wonder why certain governments don't want the Bible in people's hands. They know how powerful it is and transforming People's lives and its effect on people. This is how it's unique. People just never get through with the Bible. You see people reading Bible books all the time. You go to Starbucks, I see people reading books all the time. You get done with a book, you put it on your shelf, you give it to a friend, you get a new book that's going to entertain you, it's an escape, or it's going to teach you something new. The Bible. People never get done with it. I remember when I was a businessman here in San Diego, I had that little New Testament and I and put it, it in my pocket. And I would lean up against the wall outside of my store waiting for customers to come. And I, I would read this little New Testament. And I'd read it and read, read, read it and read it and read it. was this big Greek uh, cafe owner right next door to me. And we would talk, you know, sometimes. He'd come out. Nobody's in his restaurant. And he would have talked to me like this. He wouldn't talk like this. This is an Italian accent because I was raised Italian. So every time I try to do an accent, it comes out Italian. This guy was Greek. And he says to me one day, aren't you done with that book yet? Five five years later. I mean, we're talking for five years and I'm out there. Aren't you done with that book yet, right? It was tongue in cheek. But no, you're never done with the book because it is the voice of God. And people have three, four, five, six different books. One for the car, one for your home, one for your office, different translations. You just never get through with it. What other book is like that? It also alters their worldview. It changes their relating patterns. This book changes our values and ethics. It changes our vocabulary and it changes our view of eternity. In fact, did you know that scientists have now proven that you have physical grooves in your brain from thought patterns from the time you were a child, which is why it's very difficult to change behavior because we think and believe the same thing after it's been ingrained in us in the way you've been taught. And so that's why the Bible says, be renewed by, renew your mind, be transformed, be changed by the renewal of your mind. Meaning when you read the Bible, God's words, God's viewpoint, God's values, God's natures, God's character now, you're feeding, you're memorizing scripture, reading, and all of a sudden it's not getting rid of the old grooves, because those are permanent, they're creating new grooves, actual grooves in your brain, so you're thinking like your father in heaven. And that's where our value system comes from, which is why if you're not in the Bible, there's no way you're not going to think like the world and believe worldly philosophies. You can't think kingdom culture if you're not saturating your mind with the, with the word of God. And people say, well, you're just brainwashed. And I said, praise God, yes, thank you very much. I've been trying to wash my brain now for 35 years from the belief systems of human beings to the belief system of God. Everybody's brain is washed. It just depends on what you're reading, what you're listening to, what you're, the way you're thinking. So how was the Bible copied and translated? Now here's where people get a little nervous about having confidence in the Bible. Well, the Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, those three languages. 99% of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And, uh, and in the New Testament, Koine Greek, which was the, the, the vernacular that was spoken during Jesus' time. The Old Testament was preserved by these guys called the Talmudin. And man, they were meticulous. Listen to this. This is the preservation of the Old Testament scriptures to make sure that they are accurate. The Talmudin is a word named for, uh, a word for students, and they shepherded the transmission of the Torah, which is the Old Testament, from AD 100 to 500. Listen to these guys. Synagogue scrolls had to be written on specifically prepared skins of clean animals and fastened with strings taken from clean animals. Each skin had to contain a certain number of columns. Each column had to be between 48 and 60 lines and 30 letters wide. The space in between consonants, sections, and books was precise, measured by hairs or threads. The ink had to be a black and prepared with specific recipe. The transcriber could not deviate from the original in any manner. No words could be written from memory. The person making the copy had to wash his whole body before beginning and had to be in full Jewish dress. The scribe had to reverently wipe his pen each time he wrote the word God or Elohim and wash his, body, his whole body before writing God's covenant name, Yahweh. Clearly, the scribes were meticulous to preserve the original text accuracy. Then you've got the Mazarets who were even more meticulous. They oversaw the translation of the Torah from 8500 to 900. They're making me thirsty just reading about them. These guys numbered the verses and the words and the letters of each book and calculated the midpoint of each one. When a scroll was complete, independent sources counted the number of words and syllables forward and backwards, and then from the middle of the text in each direction to make sure the exact number had been preserved. They don't tell you this in university, by the way. Just letting you know. Proofreading and the revision had to be done within 30 days of a completed manuscript. Up to two mistakes on a page could be corrected. Three mistakes on a page condemned the entire manuscript. Manuscript. These scribes treated the text so reverently; the older copies were destroyed to keep them from being misread. Prior to 1947, I catch this. Prior to 1947, the oldest Hebrew manuscript was from the ninth century. Then the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You guys ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Enabled us to check the accuracy of our current manuscripts. That the oldest copy was from from the nineteenth from the um, 9th century, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were from 100 B.C. That's a 1,000-year spread. The 100 B.C. Qumran Scrolls to the 9th century manuscripts, 1,000-year gap, we find an amazing 95% of the texts are identical. The 5% are simply incidentals. I mean, there's the proof right there. That the Bible has not been messed with ever since it was originally written. And now, furthermore, the New Testament copies. I want you to see this. This is, this is really, really important for you to understand and have confidence in the authenticity of the Bible. The way that uh, historians authenticate a manuscript of antiquity is they put it through a test. One of the main tests is when was it written, when was the first copy written of the original, how many years between, and how many copies were there that we can compare the copies to make sure they all say the same thing. You with me? You get it? All right, let's look at this chart. Let me uh, get out my handy-dandy laser here. We're all on the same page. So we see, now these are all these are all classic texts that any university, any historian, any author will say these have all been tested and they are authentic and we teach from them. It's where we get our philosophies and our education from. Many of these Caesar's writings. When was it written? Are you guys? You guys out over there? Okay. Well, this is the exciting screen over here because I got a laser, but you can look over there. If Okay, Caesar was written 100 to 44 BC. Earliest copy was in 8,900, right? So you got a 1,000 year time span between the time Caesar wrote and the first copy of his writings, was 1,000 years. And there were 10 copies made. So you can check 10 copies that so they all say the same thing of the original writing. And everybody says, yes, amen. Therefore, that is an authentic uh, document of antiquity. Plato's writings, 40, 427. The 347 B.C., 900 years later was the first copy made. That's a 1,200-year spread. That is, seven copies were made. AD 100 to AD 1100, that's a 1,000-year spread for Tacitus. 20 copies made. Uh, Thucydides. All right, him too. Thank you, Mark. By the way, Mark is a very intelligent man. He has multiple degrees in fact, we play a game. When Mark comes to our house, all the kids sit around in the living room or on the table, and we play a game called Stump Mark. Stump Mr. Mark. That's what we call it. And they just ask him all sorts of trivial facts from any uh, category of life and see if we can stump him. And it's usually really, really hard. Herodotus. 384, 900 years later is the earliest copy. 1300 year difference between the time it was written and the first copy. Eight copies are available to authenticate. Aristotle, everybody says, oh, well, of course. Well, 450 BC, 900 years first copy. 1400 years between the writings of Aristotle and the first copy. 49 copies available. Homer, his Iliad, 900 BC uh, is when he wrote. 400 BC is the first copy. That's 500 years. And the 643 copies and that is like the apex of uh, documents of antiquity how's that compared to the New Testament? And people say, "Oh, you can't trust the New Testament because it's been translated over and over and over and over and over. Well look at this. the New Testament, 80,40 to 100 is that when it was written, the earliest copy is 81,25. That's a 25-year span between the first copy, and there are 24,000 copies and circulation in the first century to make sure it is authentic. So if you're going to throw out the New Testament and say, oh, it was just written by man, you can't trust it, you got to throw out all these two. Boom. Put my trusty laser away because we're done with that. And then the English Bible is translated directly from the original language. Now, this is important because one of the things that people say is, well, you know, the Bible been translated over and over and over and over. How can you know that it's actually true? It's only translated one time. The translators don't go from the original language to another language to another language and then finally to English. The translators go to the original language of Hebrew and Greek and then they translate it into, now this will make sense to you, the common vernacular, not a different language. It is the difference between the the Elizabethan English, right? Those thou's hearken untoeth, to, yo, what's up? Means the same thing, but you change the vernacular as you move forward. Like I was talking to a, a friend just a couple of days ago, giving him an example like this. When The first time I was a youth pastor, and the first time I heard this word, one of the youth said, oh, man, that guy's sick. I was like, oh. Let's pray for him. They're like, no, no, he's good. No, but, you know, Jesus still heals today. No, I'm, what we're saying is he's awesome. But you said he's sick. Yeah, that's what sick means. He's awesome. I'm like, oh, my God, my brain hurts. So, like, if, you know, they did a modern translation today, they might say, and Jesus was sick. It means he was awesome, right? said, say, so you, it was retranslated. No, it's just... The vernacular. I have multiple translations, but they all say the same thing. None of the core values, fundamental truths of the gospel have been changed with any authenticated translation that you're going to read. Unless you go to other religions where they've changed what the Bible says in the original language to fit their belief system. Okay, let me see how we're doing on time because these last two are, are just awesome. I got to move fast. Okay, can I go a little more? Because these last two are really, really strong. How does science and history compare to the Bible? All right, now my wife is a scientist, so I've got to make sure I'm, I'm on my toes here. We've got a couple other scientists in the house, so here we go. How about science? It's been said that the Bible is not a science book. That's been said to me. It's not a science book or historic book. It's a religious book and a theological book. Well, let's see how... It lines up on these two subjects of science and history. The Bible is not a science textbook, but it does describe how the universe works. Consider this. What the Bible says. Oh, I want to get out my... I just want to do this. I like using this thing. Here we go. All right, you ready? Okay, what does the Bible say? Can you guys even see that? Is it too small? I'm going to read it to you. All right, what well, the Bible says. The earth is a sphere. What people thought, the earth is a flat disk. What we know now, the earth is a sphere. The Bible says the number of stars, more than a billion. What people thought, the number of stars, 1,100. What do we know now? More than a billion stars. What the Bible says, every star is different. What people thought, all the stars are the same. What do we believe now? Every star is different. The Bible says the light is in motion. What people thought, light is fixed and in place. And what do we believe now? Light is in motion. The Bible says air has weight. What people thought, air is weightless. And what do we know now? Air has weight. The Bible says that wind blows in cyclones. What people thought, wind blows straight. What do we know now? Wind blows in cyclones. The Bible says the blood is the source of life and healing. What people thought, sick people must be bled out. What do we know now? Blood is the source of life and healing. You know, scientists worked for years and years and years and years and years to find out what the primary energy of the universe was. And they finally came out down to determine that the main source of energy in the universe is is light. And yet, Genesis 1 says, Light be. In addition to these phenomena just mentioned, the Bible also describes the conservation of mass and energy, the hydraulic cycle of evaporation, condensation, and precipitation, gravity, the Pleiades and the Orion as gravitationally bound star groups, the effect of emotions on physical health, the spread of contagious disease by close contact, and the importance of sanitation to health. What grade would you give a book that could do this and was completed 2,000 years ago? What grade would you give it? I was curious. American astronomer, planetary scientist, NASA scientist Robert Jastrow says this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He is about to conquer the highest peak of ignorance or uh, scientific truth that's overcoming ignorance. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) Scholar Jack Cottrell says this, Through the wealth of data uncovered by historical and archaeological research, we are able to measure the Bible's historical accuracy. In every case where, it claim, where its claim can be tested, the Bible proves to be accurate and reliable. Now, how about history? Many people have questions about the Bible's historical accuracy. The Old Testament makes frequent references to people called the Hittites. For centuries, historians were unable to trace this people group called the Hittites They were supposed to be neighbors of the Israelites. And so they said, well, these biblical writers just made up the Hittites so they could prove certain stories and certain points. This caused the credibility of the Bible to be called into question. Until, however, in 1906, an archaeological dig confirmed the existence of the Hittite nation. They unearthed the capital city of the Hittites and 40 other cities of its empire. The biblical account was accurate. They discovered an Egyptian-Hittite peace treaty, which is this right here. Proving the history, historical existence of the Hittite nation. And then in the book of Daniel, some historians will say, well, there's a portion of the book of Daniels where it talks about the name of a particular king, Belshazzar. And we know that the king was not Belshazzar during that time. Well, another uh, archaeological dig found three stones, and on them they found the king a babylon went out to an extended war campaign and put his son in his seat while he was gone and guess what his name was belshazzar i could go on and on and on but over the last 100 years in particular scores of archaeological finds have solved what once seemed to be an unexplainable contradictions between historical accounts and biblical accounts Archaeological Nelson Gluck says this, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Now, how prophecy compares to the Bible, this is the last and this is my favorite. This is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence for truth of the Bible and its uncanny track record. It's fulfilled prophecies. You guys understand what prophecy is? this is going to happen, this is how it's going to happen, this is when it's going to happen. Like a guy named Cyrus, who 300 years before he was born, the prophet Isaiah writes down that a guy named Cyrus is going to be king and he's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their city. 300 years, though, you can read this in the Bible and in world history. 300 years later, there was a guy born named Cyrus who ended up being king. And somebody came and showed him Isaiah's prophecy. Could you imagine seeing your name written in a prophecy when you would be born? And that he was going to let the Jews rebuild their city. So guess what Cyrus did? Yeah, you better. Prophecies like that are overwhelmingly convincing. But there are several uh, that you can look at. I'm going, to, I'm, going to hit, I'm going to hit this one for time's sake. I think most of you are aware that the Old Testament has made bold and specific predictions about what would happen when the Messiah would come. The Messiah is, in other words, for Savior, who we believe to be Jesus. So in the Old Testament, all those prophets are prophesying about the coming one. The predictions were written down in the Bible between 1400 B.C. and 400 years before Jesus was even born. And the prophecies are incredibly detailed. It's not like, don't go to the left, don't go to to the left, don't go to the right, go straight. That's not the kind of prophecies we're talking about. We're talking about very specific prophecies, like what city he would be born in, what family he would be born to, what manner of his birth would be, how he would live, how he would die, how he would rise again from the dead. Look look at this. There are over 332 prophecies about the Messiah when he would come. 332 prophecies from the Old Testament. Many of these prophecies were fulfilled before Jesus even had a chance to read them or act on them. It's not like he'd read a prophecy and then say, oh, I better do that so I can prove to be the Messiah. He wasn't even born yet. For instance, here are eight of them. Where the Messiah Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, the house of David, the town of Bethlehem, the wise men would bring him gifts, and that the children in the surrounding area would be slaughtered as King Herod tried to kill the Son of God as when he was a baby. Now, those are difficult prophecies for a baby to pull off while he's still lying in the manger. So, Peter Stoner, mathematician, used the mathematical science of probability that just eight of these 332 prophecies would come to pass. And here's what he determined mathematician Peter Stone had calculated the odds of any one person could fulfill eight prophecies predicted of the Messiah. After doing his calculations, he said, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies is one and the tenth to the seventeenth power. You know what that looks like? One hundred times the thousand, 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 thousand. Here's here's an illustration he gave to help us understand that. He says this, If we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, they will cover all the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting this one right? Right just about the same chance that the prophets would have had in writing these eight prophecies, eight prophecies, and having them all come to pass in one man. He went back and calculated the probability of just 48 prophecies coming to pass, and it was 1 to the 10 to the 157th power. It's just ridiculous. And now this, considering that there's only 10 to the 80th power of atoms in the entire universe, How many atoms are in the universe? 10 to the 80th power. What's the probability of 48 of the 332 prophecies coming to pass in Christ? 1 to the 10 to the 157th power. But really, the only way to know if the Bible is true for you is to begin reading it. You just got to open it up. And just start reading it. And let God prove to you. Let himself prove to you that it really is his book. That's what happened to me when I was 19 and I started reading that. Even through the old King James, God spoke to me. I remember I was a college student at Ohio State University. I remember between classes, on the bus, I would read and I would read and I would read. And the thing that was amazing to me... Was I would read a story and it happened to me that day. I'd be in a conversation with somebody or something would happen. I thought, wow, that's weird. And then it happened again. Another coincidence. Then it happened again. Another coincidence. And then another coincidence. And then another coincidence. And they kept piling up until one day it dawned on me. I think God's communicating with me. He proved himself to me and he will do the same for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have not left us without evidence. Hard evidence that you are true. Thank you for doing what you knew needed to be done for us to trust the Bible and its preservation. Lord, we pray that our eyes would be opened, our hearts should be humbled, we'd become like little children trusting you so that we can all experience your goodness in our lives. I pray for every believer here today listening to me online, watching online or here in this house, that every child of God would pick this book up again and begin to commune with you and relate to you and listen to you speak to their hearts and to their minds your thoughts. I pray for every seeker and even every skeptic of the Bible that they would courageously pick it up and let you prove yourself to them. Just like you did the Derek Prince. Because you're God and you can do it. Now as you're in prayer, if you've never given your life to Jesus, what the Bible says is there's only one way to heaven. And that there is no way that you're ever going to get into heaven through your own good works. But you must throw yourself on the cross of Christ and say, it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus paid for your sins. He is the only one who could and he did because he loves you and he's asking you to come to him today and to give your life to him so your sins can be completely wiped out and he can breathe the spirit into your soul and you can become a child of God today. Will you do that? Will you do that right now? Just close your eyes and pray this prayer with me if that's you. Say, Jesus, I believe the Bible. I believe God sent you to the earth to die for my sins. And I believe you rose from the dead. And I need my sins forgiven. So I ask you now to come into my heart. Forgive me for my sins. And I give you my life. I call you my Savior. From this day forward, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, in your bulletin there's a guest card. You can fill it out and check, became a Christian today. You could also write, I rededicated my life today. You could also write, I have some questions still I'd like to have answered. And you can contact us. You can contact me, john at gatheringplacechurch.org. Or go to a connect group and ask questions. It's a great place. If you haven't gotten your book, God Questions book, please get that. Go to a connect group this week. Uh, The middle school are going through the same thing. The high schoolers are in there going through the same thing. The adults are going through the same thing. We're getting equipped to be able to help people come to Christ by answering good questions with good answers. Amen. Prayer teams, please come down. God bless you if you need prayer, come down. Otherwise. I'll see you at a Connect group or see you next Sunday. Lord of all creation, oh, what a earth!